namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa udang dhammang sangkang namasami So reading from the 18th Discourse of the Middle Length Sayings of the Honey Ball, Madhu Pindika. I won't read all of it, but uh, just is that Blessed One was living in the Sakyan country, Kapilavattu. He was the son of the Sakyan king, uh, principality, Kapilavattu. Sakyans were known to be proud and argumentative people. <laughs> as the following story indicates. One morning the Blessed One dressed and taking his bowl and outer robe went to Kaplavattu for arms. Having received arms, he went to the great wood for the day's abiding, sat down at the root of a bilva sapling tree for the day's abiding. Dandapani, the Sakyan, while walking and wandering for exercise, also went to the great wood. When he entered the great wood, he went to the bilva sapling where the Blessed One was and exchanged greetings with him. When his courteous and amiable talk was finished, he stood at one side, leaning on his stick, and asked the Blessed One, What does the recluse assert? What does he proclaim? Friend, I assert and proclaim such a teaching that one does not quarrel with anyone in the world, with its gods, its maras, its brahmas recluses and brahmins, princes and people. Such a teaching that perceptions no more underlie that brahmin who abides detached from sensual pleasures without perplexity, shorn of worry, free from craving for any kind of being. When this was said, Dandapani the second shook his head wagged his tongue and raised his eyebrows until his forehead was puckered in three lines. Then he departed, leaning on a stick. He didn't quite get that one. (laughs) So in the evening, Bhikkhu asked the Blessed One, "What, what what was this teaching? He just gave Dandapani. How is it that perceptions no more underlie that Brahmin who abides detached from sensual pleasures without perplexity, shorn of worry, free from craving for any kind of being. Because as to the source through which perceptions and notions tinged by mental proliferation beset someone, if nothing is found to delight in, welcome and hold to, this is the end of the underlying tendency to passion, the underlying tendency to aversion the underlying tendency to views, the underlying tendency to doubt, the underlying tendency to conceit, the underlying tendency to desire for being, the underlying tendency to ignorance. This is the end of resorting to rods and weapons of quarrels, brawls, disputes, recrimination, malice and false speech. Here these evil unwholesome states cease without remainder. So then the Buddha gets up and leaves. And the bhikkhus ponder this, and they don't quite get it either. 
So they ask the Venerable Mahakachana, who is uh, considered to be eminent in, in teasing out the four meanings of the Buddha's expressions. And they go to see him and say, could you please you know, expound what this is all about? So Mahakachana first of all says, well, you know, the Buddha's got it. You know, he's the great being, you should ask him. But eventually they they prevail upon him to explain. And he says, I understand the detailed meaning of this to be as follows. Depend on, on the eye and forms. Eye consciousness arises. The meeting of the three is contact. With contact is conditioned, there is feeling. What one feels, that one perceives. What one perceives, that one thinks about. What one thinks about, that one mentally proliferates. What one has mentally proliferated as the source, perception, notions, tinged by mental proliferation, beset one with respect to past, future and present forms, cognizable through the eye. So he goes through all of the six bases, including, including the mind. Depending on the mind, mind objects, mind consciousness arises. The meeting of the three is contact. With contact is condition, there is feeling. One feels that one perceives. What one perceives, that one thinks about. What one thinks about, that one mentally proliferates. But one is mentally proliferated as the source, perception and notions tinged by mental proliferations beset one with respect to past, future and present mind objects cognizable through the eye. When there is the eye, form, eye consciousness, it is possible to point out the manifestation of contact. When there is the manifestation of contact, it is possible to point out the manifestation of feeling. When there is the manifestation of feeling, it is possible to point out the manifestation of perception. When there is the manifestation of perception, it is possible to point out the manifestation of thinking. When there is the manifestation of thinking, it is possible to point out the manifestation of being beset by perceptions and notions tinged by mental proliferation. So then he goes through all of the six bases, including mind. And then when there is no I, no form, no I consciousness, it is impossible to point out the manifestation of contact. When there is no mind, no mind objects and no mind consciousness, it is impossible to point out the manifestation of contact. No manifestation of contact, it is impossible to point out the manifestation of feeling. No manifestation of feeling, it is impossible to point out the manifestation of perception. When there is no manifestation of perception, it is impossible to point out the manifestation of thinking. When there is no manifestation of thinking, it is impossible to point out the manifestation of being perceived by perceptions and notions tinged by mental proliferation. When the Blessed One rose from his seat and went to his dwelling after giving a summary without expounding the detailed meaning, this is um, how I understand the detailed meaning. If you wish, go to the Blessed One and ask him about the meaning of this. As the Blessed One explains it to you, so you should remember it. So go to see the Buddha, and the Buddha says, Mahakachana is wise because Mahakachana has great wisdom. 
If you had asked me the meaning of this, I would explain it to you in the same way the Mahagajana has explained it. Such is the meaning of this, and so you should remember it. So some pieces are perhaps obvious, and some pieces are mysterious in this, as is often the case. But we see um, some of our friends there, the uh, contact, immediate impact, impression, triggering, being triggered. Uh, we recognize with that there's a feeling, mm, a perception. The perception is a basis for thinking. Mm. Um, thinks, proliferation starts to occur. What is this? What is this? Why is this? How am I this? What's happened to that? And so the perceptions and notions that are arisen from that mental proliferation start to flood one becomes um, overwhelmed. And um, so, and he's saying these are all dependent upon underlying tendencies and nutsaya. Um, so, um, these, if you like, are blueprints or loaded programs that are underlying and not necessarily apparent uh, in ordinary in an ordinary way of seeing things we don't notice them and yet when something happens so these underlying tendencies are no longer underlying they well up they well up in terms of um, passion aversion views doubt conceit that is conceiving oneself to be something conceiving oneself to be something, conceiving others to be something, making comparative judgments about oneself and about others, who one was, what one used to be, what one could be, what the others are, what they think I am, and so forth, this web of conceit. The underlying tendency to desire for being or becoming is one projects oneself, an apparent self, into the future. One projects, generates this apparent self that's been derived from conceit into a future that doesn't exist, but forms in accordance with how one has perceived oneself to be. So, you know, the uh, trapped person projects themselves into the next trap. The, uh, the, the angry person or the angry being that's been made protects himself to the next situation, dream scenario of things they have to fight against um, person with the underlying tendency to ill will that's proliferated upon it generates a person who feels who generates an imagined world where they are uh, annoyed, disappointed, hurt or surrounded by people who they cannot trust or feel friendly with. And so, and then this then becomes, this model of being, becoming, persists and becomes the basis for consciousness. So then we see, we note, we take note on any 
any perception that can confirm that dream scenario that the mind has conjured. And so, you know, and the mind is very good at scanning and noticing the one detail, or the two or three details we can add up, or the five details, or the hundred details. Mental proliferation suddenly, and an unknown becomes very well known, thoroughly mapped out. This is mental proliferation out of what we have just the you know singularity of being here becomes a multiplicity this is the mental proliferation with all kinds of details and strategies and and possibilities that we make generate a virtual world and then consciousness lands in that But if there is no, so if we just take it uh, uh, essentially, as Mahakachana does, which is if there is no, when you begin to recognize this is all dependently arisen, then is it possible that consciousness does not get established in such a way? When there is no mind, no mind object, no mind consciousness, then it cannot be, consciousness cannot be established based upon these proliferating perceptions. Mm, That sounds, yeah, but there is a mind. (laughs) Mm, Mano, here we have mano, the mano-vijnana. Mano is very much a function. And if we, we so it's a war in the instance of there not being a mind. So we could say, colloquially speaking, when one doesn't place one's mind upon something that isn't there, when we do not, when the, so it's not that we don't exactly have a capacity for mental functioning, it's just that we've paused on it. Our mental rationality, our mental act of describing, defining, it's checked, it's paused. And so, yeah. at least we don't put it there. We don't put it where we feel the welling up of his underlying tendencies to doubt or conceit. Because conceit doesn't mean pride, it means conceiving oneself to be something or not be something. And particularly, specifically in relationship to others comparative assessments, judgments, conceiving what other people conceive me as, conceiving I'm the same as, conceiving I'm worse, conceiving I'm better. You know, the conceiving, the self-definition process. Mm-hmm. So this one, when there isn't the tendency to do that, that tendency to ink in a self-image, when there's an ability to let oneself just be a stranger to oneself, yes. well, we see the whole that's arising here is feeling, sensations, jitta, sensitivities. Why make somebody out of that? Hmm. With underlying tendency to conceit, yeah, we stamp somebody on that. Hmm. The underlying tendency to desire for being. Hmm. So with conceit, Conceiving oneself there, 
is a, is a, is a generation of a, of a of a virtual form, an image, a self-image that will, has been in the past and will be in the future. And mm. wish for that, inclination to that, and with that is the generation because it cannot exist in a complete vacuum of a detailed world's view scenario in which that being will persist. And um, the uh, because this is all conjured, then this is the underlying tendency to ignorance, not even knowing really that this is just a pure conjuring act, conjuring trick. And the uh, the real. Um, Problem is that with this underlying tendencies that we have not been aware of, then afflictive tendencies arise that project an afflicted being into an afflicted future with conjuring scenarios that, that match their afflictions. A doubt person moves into the world of doubt with uncertainties. Well, it's not a person, the doubt tendency generates people. The passion tendencies, the, the sense desire tendency conjures up scenarios in which a person dependent upon sensory gratification arises in a world full of sensual delights. So this is the whole sangsaric story, isn't it? But if in apprehending these tendencies, one does not engage, does not persist, does not intend, does not fixate and focus on, then the mind consciousness does not crystallize around these potentials and generate this mass of suffering. When we say here mind consciousness, just to differentiate manovijnana from citta, and sometimes these two are uh, conflated, but the, that's up for you to to judge. I, I myself see that there are there are they certainly operate together, but I would say they are two different aspects of a process, perhaps, or I don't say two different entities. But jitta is more sensitivity. Jitta's a sensitivity. Mano is a function. Chitta is a series of potentials and potencies and influences and tentative intentions and confusions and joys. And all of them are all held in a kind of uh, un, uh, non-formulated state. They're all the waverings of possibilities for good and for bad. It's like a, something that hasn't really crystallized. Chitta is constantly affected, you know, affected by, you know, inclinations to, you know, that arise, affected by uh, fear, uh, love, joy, and it's this wavering, and then it can crystallize and act when it seizes on something, focuses on it, holds it firmly, then mano vijnana comes in. You have mental karma. This begins to then form a, uh, um, 
generate a form, a self or an entity of some kind, or a quality that's fixed, established, even though it's, it's wavering, but it's got a certain trajectory to it. And that trajectory, as one speaks, thinks, acts upon it, moves, you know, generates a person moving forward in time. Now, to get some perspective on this, you might notice, you know, so I'm saying notice what isn't there anymore, what was, what you used to think about, be inclined towards, passionate about, involved with, and notice it's not there. So you can say that's where there is no mind. There is no mind bent on ill will. There's no mind bent on poisoning slugs. There's no mind bent on, you know, number one, many things that one might have done, childish things, immature things, foolish things, and the mind has lost its flavor. There is no mind for that. That doesn't come in, in as, a, as a project, as an intention, as an inclination. It's, that doesn't arise. So where there's no mind, there's no measuring, no calculating, then the mind consciousness born or that is inclined towards that, an action in that way does not arise. With no arising, there's no thinking about it. You don't have to think about not poisoning slugs or whether they, you know anything like that because it just doesn't occur. <laughs> when it doesn't occur, there's no proliferation. Should I do this? Is it right? Wrong? You know, it, it doesn't occur. So there's an ending to that, and you can be aware of that ending. You can be aware of that particular of that ending of that consciousness. You can be aware of going to that. Oh, it's not there. Hmm? Notice, yeah, how many things are not here. Hmm? You even you might say, well, yeah, but they will be here when I leave the retreat. Are you sure? Well, what? Why? Where are they? <laughs> Where are they? Held as potentials, I suppose. In chitta. Okay. Held as potentials. Potential home, a potential car, a potential job, a potential... Hold it, then keep it, don't keep it just as that. What is that potential carrying? Is it carrying potentials towards passion, craving, fear, aversion, doubt? Conceiving oneself, setting up, I am this, she is that, they are that, you know, setting up, you know, chess games in your mind with other people. What are you going to do? What are you going to say? The potentials for that? Could it be that you see the potentials for that and you think, no. (laughs) Not again, you know. So we could perhaps come out with a, you know, cleaner. We'll see. We'll see. Maybe, maybe not. Cleaning, giving oneself a a chance to reset what is relevant, what is finished, what's no longer relevant. What do you see as beautiful? Where you know your mind could base itself on that, rather than base itself on that. And still holding that as potential. 
So we hold the potential for goodwill, we hold the potential for uh, respect, we hold the potentials for uh, mental clarity, we hold the potentials we know how to discharge the stress, start, discharge the contact impression that gives that presses on us, that pushes us. We know how to receive that and discharge. Don't jump on it. Don't worry about it. Don't proliferate around it. Just discharge. Have we known that? Have we recognized that? Hmm? Where contact does not ignite, does not flash, does not trigger. No triggering. No perception arises. No, none of that. Oh, it's this, it's this, it's always this, it's there, that, I am this, so it should be this. None of that arises. So the thinking doesn't go on around how to deal with it or why one has it or how to stop being it. There's an ending of the suffering. So this is, this is you know, this is still very, very highly compressed teaching. Hmm. But rather than saying, you know, when you see something like where there is no mind, it says where there is no mind. It doesn't say there is no, no mental function. It says in the instance where there isn't. Notice what your mind isn't landing on. And so the theme here between citta and mano is citta carries the potencies, the potentials for fear and joy, doubt, doubt and confidence. Uh, aversion and patience and forgiveness, uh, self-aversion and appreciation, those potentials. Yeah, those and the underlying tendencies towards throwing oneself into a miserable state, dependent on contact, because we have inheritances, and outside are inheritances. They're they're loaded. The, the latencies that have been loaded uh, through karma, through actions, either one's own or the actions of others, they've been established. Those are the ones we, that the mind will easily run down. And chitta will run down those tracks and generate mental function. Mm-hmm. So chitta will be affected by those tendencies in its amorphous state and run down those tracks and then form mental inclinations, mental consciousness. Mm-hmm. Jitta is the sense of sensitivity. You could say it's the very essence of being conscious. That trembling, sensitive alertness, awareness and you notice just how rippling that can be. And as you contemplate how it can be smoothed and steadied and gladdened and strengthened and the requirement for that. So it doesn't just, like, like a mercury, just spill down the, late, the nearest groove. The nearest groove is likely to be the latent tendencies. And here you go again. And then we crystallize mental action, thinking, planning, strategizing, worrying, inking oneself in as this and that, and never this and could be that, inking oneself, inking a world in that fits it.
Is it possible just to, to restrain jitta from those tendencies? So there's no mind running, there's no crystallization dependent upon those afflictive tendencies. There's no proliferation, there's no continuing the story. And you begin to be able to prune the story. Maybe it's not never going to be any story, but at least you prune away the pieces. There's no longer the obsession with, the delight in, the wrangling with, the tangling with, the fascination with, the aversion to, the tribunals, the conceits. If he was and I was and they weren't and should be, when there isn't that. Pruning away these tendencies to dispute, confrontation. So this mental function doesn't pick up. So jitta, this is our uh, task, our cultivation, our treasure, our strange being, child, that we could mature into something wise, supportive, or could lead us into down the same old tracks. Manovinyana is the function. Having been given the go-ahead from chitta, Manovinyana will form the, the situation and a self and a world that will fit the, the, the message that chitta has presented to it. So chitta has been led by afflictive tendencies. It will generate an afflicted program, afflicted attention, which will give rise to a set of afflictive functions that generate an afflicted person in an afflicted world. There is no mind. How is there no mind? And elsewhere it is said where one does not intend, does not plan, does not get preoccupied. Consciousness does not land, does not get established does not rise up. So where there is that? So he starts to, you know, it sounds very ultimate, doesn't it? Like, but looking at, you know, still where, in all the, you know, cosmos of one's experience, one of the pieces you don't want to go to, you don't want to go anymore. You've had enough of, finished with, Irrelevant, seen through, going nowhere useful. Mm. What are the what are the tendencies that take that there? What are the intentions that arise without one wishing them to? That's alarming, isn't it? How little control you have over your mind. You know, tendencies just well up, volitions well up, reactions well up, perceptions well up. Where are they welling up from? You know, latent tendencies, not from some conscious self, but latent tendencies throwing this stuff up. Mm. So we see the danger. We see the peril. We see the, you know, what, how, what we're not in control. Therefore, as we say, well, then, then this means one has to say, 
have some say in this. Train chitta. So this twofold training, we begin to work on deliberate conscious intention. Just to starve the afflictive intentions, the reactions. Mm. Start where do do intentions come from? They come from perceptions, felt meanings, the flash of interpretation that's so ready for us to interpret what's going on, Mm. dependent on what? And what are the tendencies that cause us to interpret things in terms of, you know, needed, not averse, fearful, unjust, wrong, shameful, guilty. What are the perceptions? What are the tendencies? You know, afflictive tendencies. Um, based upon conceit, becoming ignorance. So, we need to acknowledge this process. You know, get, get the, unmask it. This is, of course, pretty distressing. See what's there. Based upon these built-in perceptions, which are raised based upon these embedded anutsaya. But then, of course, the story is you also have embedded parami, perfections towards virtue, towards giving and sharing towards helping and serving, towards letting go of things, renunciation, and truthfulness, clarity, patient bearing with. And so you focus on intentions that establish those tendencies. The jitta begins to embed itself in those. And that means that there's no energy does not is dragged out from these blueprint anutsayas, only rebuild, you reset a body, you reset a mind, you reset a mental consciousness, you reset the world, uh, and you can do this. Mm. Meditation, you know, I have a, it's really, that's this transformation process. Um, and it's based upon this Realization of the peril we're in, you know, of the danger we're in, and making the effort to cultivate perceptions that cause us to turn away perception of impermanence, changeability. What's the point of holding on to that? It's going to go. Perceptions, dispassion. How far did they ever get me? So what, you know? What's the point of going down that route towards ill will and craving, hoarding and fearing, gaining and losing? What's the point of going that way? Stopping, perceptions based upon stopping. Is what's it like when we just, just put it down? And just begin to recognize in these perceptions that take one away and encourage so their wisdom based, based upon seeing things more clearly. 
And we look at the dangers, the pitfalls underneath the sheen of samsara and the urgency of it uh, and the seeming obligatory enlistment in it. And say, maybe, 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 maybe not. You know, for now at least, I quit. Yeah. For now, to this extent, I'm resigning. Yeah. To this extent, I can resign. Yeah. So if you're resigning a little bit, some of it, you pick up the perception of doing just that. And it just, it could be tiny pieces of one's life. You say, I've quit, I resign from being that being, from being the ever guilty, the ever responsible, the ever busy, the ever, you know, being that old being. I, I quit. You've seen how that being arises. And what's it, you've seen how that being arises. And the apparent uh, passion for that being, to fill that form, and the danger of that. And the ending or continuing karma that goes on with that. And seen the danger of it. And some of it is extremely miserable. And it's, it's mind-boggling when one sees just how miserable one's inclinations to be. Because they're not yours. This is, you know, these anutsai are just like, you know, hidden demons, hidden ghosts. So we witness that, we make deliberate Establish perceptions based upon the unpleasant or the unattractive nature of what we see as attractive. Just to, just to say, you know, don't run down that channel. It's not a final statement about things, it's a statement that you use as a medicine. Don't run down that channel. Don't blindly crash down that. Of course things look attractive. How do you think they sell them if they weren't, didn't make them look good? <laughs> How come is it we, all the, in general, human beings always want more? More and more and more, more and more. We know the whole world is based upon up, up, continually inclining us towards hoarding and greed. And then what's the result of that? Fear, lack of sharing, uh, and mistrust and anxiety. And aggression and hostility and addiction and confusion stress so not just, just you know you see any of that you want to say enough enough of the message enough of the impulse and then you say well, what having borne that in mind having worked directly on the jitta having revealed these anutsayas they do well up and that's of course the Difficult thing of retreats, these, these suddenly these things well up. Mm-hmm. Having seen them, they say, well, this is what not to follow. And then what to follow to just perceptions that, first of all, perceptions that repudiate those messages. Perceptions of ill will, repudiated with goodwill. You know, perceptions of desperate urgency generate perceptions of relaxation and ease, calm, being held. Imagine what that would be. Rather than imagine 
the crazy world. Imagine a, uh, the old person. Why not imagine a new one? If you can imagine anything, this is just jitta. And you so you see, you start to see. Oh, you you don't have to. That tendency in the mind is not permanent, not concrete. It's habitual, but it's not concrete. Ah, now if I reset on the level of chitta, what potentials, what potencies, what inclinations I linger in and dwell in and make much of and enjoy and appreciate and concentrate, stabilize, make steady, rest in that, is it possible? Is it not possible? that when one comes into mental function, one's mental functions will be steered by that. One's thoughts, one's actions, one's trajectories will be steered by that. Of course it is. And then when it, where it, there's no mind, where that isn't there, that can fade. Of course, it fades rather than switches off. We have cause things to cease and they cease and then they well up. You do it again. Uh, You review the process uh, until it doesn't well up. This is a process who knows how long, sometimes months, weeks, years, decades, but it can be done. Meditation is a way to grow up really quickly rather than slowly. (laughs) So you tell tale signs, and whenever it gets into the level of I am this, what can I do, what will I be, what won't I be, you think this is not a place to work from. This is not this is not this is not the starting place. You're it's already you're already halfway down the track. Get back. What generates that I am? What is the pressure, the uh, push, the perception, the favouring, the aversion, the fearing, the resisting? What is that? Where is that? You come down to these jitter tendencies mm. and they were very much in the level of just of contemplating and working on chitta and then you can begin to see this is you know all this is just stuff I don't have to buy into that how do you do that we generate alternative perceptions that we do feel uh, give us comfort stability Gladness, strength, confidence, perceptions. These are not strategies, these are just felt meanings. And in our imaginative world, we say, look, okay, we just got today, you know, this is maybe the last day of your life, right? So, for now, quit. (laughs) Quit Sangsara for today. It'll be ready tomorrow, no no worries. Definitely... You can pick it up any old time you like. Absolutely, promise you. (laughs) Quit. And imagine 
what you'd actually would like to be. <laughs> uh, not as a fixed entity, but just as a heart impression. Where would that, where would it like, where would that be, feel good for you? And you start, I like this, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll just get down the list and get to the essential feel-good experience, where it's, you know, beaches, sunshine, da-da-da. Yeah, but what actually is the, is the core of that? <laughs> the core meaning is uh, free from harm, free from ill will, free from pressure, feeling warm, feeling fruitful, feeling relaxed. Yeah? Yeah. What would that, what, could you describe what that scenario is? Really get into it, you know? Linger in it, dwell in it, gladden it. Because as you practice, you can distill the images, the ideas, the fantasies, if you like, down to a core impression, fresh, clean, open, free, open. Unhindered, yeah. Bright. And you say this is where the nimitta, mental nimitta. Stay in that. Focus on that. Breathing in, breathing out, steadying it. If the function of out breathing at that imaginative level will transfer that quality into your body. Into your into energy of your body, you will start to feel. Oh yeah, it's like that. It's not like that. It's like that. It's like that. That's what it's like. You know, you, you feel it. You feel a certain effect on the somatic level. Well, I think this is really helpful. To this is what my. Um, Angle on samadhi is when the mental effect and the bodily effect merge, and they're, they're wholesome, and the dispelling of hindrances. And the mental body and the, and the somatic body merge at a place where there are no hindrances, because nobody wants that. <laughs> you know, whatever your fantasy or your imagination was, I bet it wasn't. Restless, worried, agitated, angry, obsessive. <laughs> Maybe. So that you, you know, well, then dwell in that. And it's like you, you reset. And this resetting is a so precious opportunity for retreat. Because you, first you don't even got, yeah, it's not, it's not that, it doesn't give you dates and details and what to do about you know your house or something but it it it, it gives you the fundamental orientation yeah which is your embodied mind and 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 that's a, that's a learning too. You know, even when you, you 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 stand or you walk around, how much do you actually walk dependent upon you know, the, the the place that you're in? Or how much do you walk or arrange yourself dependent on how your body feels? 
Do you walk down a corridor? Or do you actually walk in your body? Let the walls take care of themselves. Don't, don't get driven by visual phenomena. Do you walk in your body or do you walk in accordance with traffic lights and shop signs? And, or do you walk in your body? This embodiment is to be cherished because this will give you your kaya viveka. If you dwell in this, then you'll not be just flung along in this social stream. You'll be able to walk down a street at a pace that you feel comfortable in. And you let the traffic rush by. You'll be able to sit in a room where you feel comfortable and move the chairs rather than move your body to fit the chairs. (laughs) You sit where you want to be because you orient around this, this living being, and you move the, the materials around you. Right? And how much of the time do we end up conforming to these inert structures, both physical and psychological, rather than honour what's alive and here? So you go the material structures, always look at the immaterial structures, conventions and systems customs and structures, uh, rules and services. How how many do you actually just find yourself orienting around conforming to those rather than to, this is my pace, this is about right, I'll be late for that. So, you know, right and wrong, where do right and wrong really make sense? What's right, where the mind and the body come together. There has to be the orientation that one always refers to, and you know, if you say, well, okay, maybe I, I maybe I stay with that five times out of ten rather than never. This is good. Rather than just completely thrown around by the appearances of things. I do get free of it now and then, sometimes. Or when I go home, I switch it off. You know? Or you know, I had to do it when I was there, but in this situation, I'm coming back to this. And you learn to dis- discharge the, the, the latent tendencies that support the world. This is the process of, of all what samadhi is about, and then you firm up within that. When you look back, and you see that has gone now. That is no longer alive, we are no longer triggered by that, no longer goaded and seduced by that, no longer bullied by that. Mm. Something has ceased. This is great gain. This is great benefit. I have confidence in what is not arising. Mm. Well, this is also significant, isn't it? Uh, you know, the mostly, or the way of, uh, I guess, 
natural habits. And certainly the way of the world is to always focus on what is arising as being the most important. Mm-hmm. And that which gives rise to the biggest hit, the biggest sensation, the biggest flash, the biggest rush, the biggest excitement. Uh, or look at what's the most horrible and get moved around between horror and, and delight. Mm. Mm. The mature practitioner notices focusing what's not arising and sees in there the place for freedom, for liberation. Mm. And the mental consciousness then does not take a stand on the, what we call the world, either to averse to it or in love with it. It's just that's that. And uh, one begins to focus on disengaging from that and the ways of disengaging with that are to relate to it with a mind bent on virtue, generosity kindness, goodwill. And when we come into what we seem to be our personal domain, look at, so, you know, so often we can find ourselves very much absorbed in the problematic nature of our experience. My restlessness, my worry, my ill will, my conceit, my doubt. Why can't I be this? What would we like to get rid of this? If only I didn't have this. I bet they don't have as much as I have of this. You know, I really shouldn't be like this, having practiced all these years. This is mental proliferation based upon these afflictive tendencies. Is it possible, instead of focusing on what's wrong with us, we might focus on what's right? We might focus where the wrongness ceases. We might notice in me there is no tendency to abusiveness. There's no action on that base. It means no tendency towards pride or self-glorification or taking advantage of others. This has ceased to me. We might notice that. We might notice as we come into that, there is a tendency towards kindness and compassion, humility and respect, uh, letting go and relinquishment. This is a great gain for me. This is a great gain. I am gladdened, I'm honoured by this, what has, not, you know, what has not arisen, and what has arisen to replace it. So that my functioning, which still has to be dealt with, my functioning is at least led by tendencies that are for my welfare and for the welfare of others, and lead to the diminution of suffering and stress. Mm. Anyone? Um.